Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hesper Baptist Church located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is encouragement to you and to anyone else you would share this with. Thank you, Scott and team, for ministering to us through song this morning. Let's just bow in a word of prayer as we begin. Father in heaven, we pray that you would work through your word, that you would do wonderful things in our hearts, that you would point us to yourself, that you would show us the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and that you would do all this by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we take comfort this morning that you have said that your word does not leave and come back empty, but it always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it out. And so, Lord, it is with these assurances that we dive into your word now, full of expectation, longing to be not only hearers of the word, but also those who do. And so, great God, be glorified, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. When we say something is unpalatable, what we mean is that it's undesirable. It's uh, difficult to tolerate unpleasant to the taste. So when we put something in our mouth, some sort of food that is undesirable, unpleasant to the taste, we reject it. We might spit it out or we might, you know, if we're over at dinner for guess who's coming to dinner with company, we might just, you know, hide it in the napkin real quickly or something like that. It's undesirable. It's unpalatable. Something might be moldy. Something might be rotten. And so we reject it. Well, ideas for some people can be unpalatable. And the whole idea of judgment is an unpalatable reality for so many. It's unpalatable for the world. It's not a subject matter that anyone likes to entertain for very long, if at all. And our world does not want to acknowledge consequences for the way that we live our lives. We want to live any old way that suits us. And so judgment is just the whole subject of judgment. I mean, just knock it off, right? I don't want to hear about that. Also, in a culture that values expressive individualism, we have no tolerance for judgment. Expressive individualism is just essentially, I can define myself any way I want to, even against the norms and conventions that for centuries we as humans have acknowledged. Things like gender, sexuality, marriage. I can define it any way I want to. And so in a culture of expressive individualism, of course something like judgment, consequences for my action, some, some standard telling me I can't live a certain way, we don't want anything to do with it. But the subject of judgment is also unpalatable in the church in some ways. Christians tend to cringe when we talk about judgment. We don't want to speak about it. We don't want to dwell on it. We avoid it. And sometimes we even act like we are embarrassed by it. We would prefer to emphasize topics of positivity, let's say, 
over and against these negative truths of Scripture. And so, emphasize for me the love of God. Talk to me about the grace of God. Talk to me about His compassion and His kindness and all of these things, which we should emphasize and which should be the main emphasis of the church of Jesus Christ. But then we come to another subject that is highlighted throughout Scripture, judgment, and we shy away Because even as Canadians, we hate to talk about those things which are seemingly negative and might be politically incorrect and might bring a little bit of offense. But the Bible does not shy away from the reality of judgment. It is candid about the awfulness of judgment for those who are not in Christ. It warns us to turn to Jesus and live And warnings are gracious. You and I both know that warnings are gracious. When we see a sign that says bridge ice is over in the winter, we're going, okay, you know what? I think I'm going to slow down by a few kilometers because I don't want to be that car that doesn't heed the warning and smashes into the guardrail. When we see a sign that says wildlife ahead, the next, you know, 30 kilometers, we are going to slow down. We don't want the deer to jump in front of us and smash our car. What a headache. This warning is gracious. When we see signs along the highway, well, I hope if you see signs along the highway that say, don't text and drive, the alert going off in your head is, you know what, that really is wisdom. That warning there is really helpful for me because one false move, texting and driving, and I haven't only affected myself, I've ruined everyone else's day because I've kept everyone in Toronto in Toronto because of my accident. Don't dive into the water here. It's too shallow. All of these warnings are gracious. And that is what we have this morning in Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 to 12. We have a candid and a gracious warning about judgment. Egypt is under judgment. That's what the plagues are all about. And Yahweh unveils his purposes for these judgments in the the plague that Sean's going to hit right after mine. Why judgment? Here's the answer, and I'm not going to go too far into it, brother. Don't worry, you've got the text next week. (laughs) Yahweh answers this question, why judgment, by saying, I am concerned about my own glory. I am concerned about my own fame, and I long for the deliverance of my people, and thus judgment is the root to these ends, these glorious ends. He is zealous That the Israelites, the Egyptians, and the whole world know that he and he alone is God. He is the all-powerful one. And so thus, as as we start to grapple this truth and this reality, we see that judgment is all about the glory of God and the good of his people. Judgment is all about the glory of God and the good of his people. And that is exactly what we see in the first, in these five verses on boils. And so we ask ourselves these questions. What do we do with this text as we're reading through five verses of boils? What do we learn from a text like this? How is this text profitable for my life in any way? And I think that the answer to this text, uh, to those questions as I meditate upon this text is is, is threefold. And I want to give you the reason for this text up front. Meditating on God's judgment affects our worship. God's power is on display through judgment. 
He shows himself to be the one who cannot be thwarted. He cannot be duped. He cannot be defied. His judgments are decisive. And thus, when we see the judgments of God, we are called to bow down before him and worship the all-powerful and almighty one. But then also meditating on God's judgments affects our preparation. It is a reminder for those who have not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ that time is short, that judgment is real, that there are decisions that mean life and death that are before us. And so it helps people with preparation. But also meditating on God's judgments affects the church's witness. The reality of judgment should propel and compel us to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only escape for the wrath of God, the only escape against the reality of God's justice. And so if we were going to summarize these five verses, and I'm going to for us, (laughs) this is how we would do that. I would say that this text is all about Yahweh and his warnings. And we find that Yahweh's warnings are intended for his glory and for our good. Yahweh's warnings are intended for his glory and for our good. And so with those ends in view, let's read about this subject matter in the sixth plague. Exodus chapter 9, verse 8 to 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over the land of Egypt and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Things get personal in plague number six. Very personal. Things have always been personal. I mean, plague number one. Nile, this center, the Nile, the center of fertility and life in Egypt is turned into blood. That's personal. Frogs. Gnats, flies, invading personal space, that's personal. Plague number five, personal property being destroyed, livestock, that's personal. But nothing is so personal as that which touches the body. This is the first plague that directly affects the body. There are boils on all the Egyptians' bodies. And this personal judgment highlights two truths that span the scope of Scripture. They are warnings that we are called to heed. The judgments of Yahweh are devastating, and the purposes of Yahweh will stand. Two warnings. The judgments of Yahweh are devastating. Secondly, the purposes of Yahweh will stand. Let's hit each of those in their turn. The judgments of Yahweh are devastating. The plague of the boils is meant to highlight the devastating nature of judgment. Look at how this judgment is described in this text. There are five features about judgment that help us round out this subject and see it in all the different facets that it it, it exists. Look with me at all five of them. First, notice the irony of judgment in the text. Did did, Did you see it? The Lord speaks. 
he gives Moses and Aaron very specific instructions. Take soot, go before Pharaoh, throw that soot from that kiln into the air. It will hover over Egypt. It will fall from the sky and it will become boils on all the Egyptians. You notice the irony in that? Kilns were likely used to make bricks. Pharaoh had been oppressing the people of Egypt through the making of more and more and more and more and more bricks until they were sweating, until they were panicked because they could not keep up with the production of bricks. Pharaoh is using this tactic. He, the small g God of Egypt, is using this tactic as a way to oppress the Israelites and a way to stick it to, in a sense, Yahweh, the Lord. You remember back in Exodus chapter 5, who is the Lord that I should listen to his voice? Pharaoh's indignant. Pharaoh, Pharaoh has no time for Yahweh. And so he oppresses the people through the making of bricks. And now, through this very means, through the sweat of the Egyptians, as the soot lines the kiln from all the hard work of the Israelites, Moses and Aaron are there to gather up that soot and stand before the face of Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, check this out. And boils fall upon all the people of Egypt. Pharaoh's devices are turned back on him. And friends, this will happen to all the enemies of God, all of the wicked. Their own devices will be their demise. The devices of the world, the strategies and afflictions of the world will be turned back on them. God will win out. His judgments are decisive. This is the irony of judgment. You notice the other irony of judgment in the text? I was reading one study Bible and it pointed out that the, that the soot is thrown up into the air. There's this symbolic nature. Why, why go before Pharaoh and just throw soot in the air? Can't, can't the Lord just say, all right, boils are coming. Boom, everyone gets hit with boils. This one study Bible, and I, I, the more I've meditated on it, the more I've, I, I think that there's really something to this. This symbolism was meant to suggest before the eyes of Pharaoh this judgment is coming down from heaven. We are throwing this soot in the air, and it's not Moses and Aaron that are responsible for this. It is the Lord who is causing this judgment to fall upon Pharaoh. Once again, think about this. Who is Yahweh, Pharaoh says, setting himself up as a god? Who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice? I've got no time for Yahweh. And as the soot falls from heaven, here's what it's symbolizing. Wake up. Yahweh is the only and true God. He is the Almighty. He is the everlasting one. He is the one who controls health and well-being. There is no one like him. Pharaoh, this has happened before your eyes. It is coming down from heaven. Wake up and look and see. This comes from Yahweh. And it gives us a similar lesson to the first irony that we went over. The lesson for us is this, that those who oppose God will be brought low. Those who set themselves up against God will be flattened by the judgment of God if they do not repent and, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The real God, the big G God of the universe is judging the false God, the small G God, Pharaoh, and everyone associated with him. And so we see the irony of judgment in this text. But then notice, secondly, the second feature of judgment, that there's, there's, a, there's a pain in judgment. Notice the pain of judgment. 
Verses 9 and 10 repeat twice the fact that the, sore, that the soot became dust, which then fell and became boils on man and on beast. A skin disease hits Egypt. And twice, verse 9 and verse 11, I believe it is, emphasize that it falls on all of Egypt. No one is escaping this. It's not, you know, this guy got it and this gal didn't. No, no, no. Everyone has boils. And imagine the devastation and turmoil that boils cause. Single words will suffice to describe the scene. Swelling. Seeping. Sore. Irritation. Itch, inflammation, heat, exhaustion. It doesn't go away. You have to sleep with it. You have to wake with it. You have to bake with it. You have to cook with it. You have to work with it. You have to care for your own kids who also have boils as you deal with your own boils. No one likes being sick when their kid is sick. <laughs> It's, not, it's a disaster. He's tired and grumpy. I'm tired and grumpy. He's sore and achy. I'm sore and achy. I just want a nap. He wants juice. I mean, it's just a big, it's a big disaster. You don't heal the way you healed as a single person, do you? I got boils and he's got boils. Oh yeah, and guess what? My parents who are elderly and aging, I care for them as well. They have boils as well. Boils absolutely everywhere. It is a bad time in Egypt. And there are likely cries coming from this affliction everywhere. They are experiencing, Egypt is experiencing the torment of judgment. And the Lord is demonstrating that he is the one who has power over health and well-being. He can humble Egypt in a second. And throughout the scriptures, we see that God's judgments, like this one, are always devastating. I haven't surveyed them all. I just wrote down the first ones that came to mind as I was thinking about the devastating effects of God's judgment throughout Scripture. But listen to these. The flood brings destruction, Genesis 6. Babel brings the confusion of languages and the scattering of people, Genesis 11. Sodom and Gomorrah brings fire and brimstone and utter destruction, Genesis chapter 18. The priests, Nadab and Abihu, are struck down in Leviticus 10 for offering unauthorized fire before the Lord. Korah and his fellow rebels in number 16 are consumed. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5, are just utterly destroyed for their deception to the church and before the Lord. <laughs> judgments, the judgments of God are always devastating. And it is not a comfortable prospect to receive judgment from the Lord. Now let me clarify this before we move on. It, physical ailments are not always indicative of God's judgment. So often when we are afflicted by pain in our life, we go, what's the Lord, what's the Lord doing? Is he angry? See, pouring his wrath upon me, is this judgment? Should I not have done this or that? And we start to become like sort of like soothsayers, like, oh, let's look back on my past and see what I did. And it, it, you've done it. What's God doing? And it's good for us to remember that our physical afflictions are not always indicative of judgment, especially if you are in Christ. Friend, you are, you're free from judgment. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But so often we revert to the worst possible situation. I'm being judged by the Lord. Remember Job in Job 2. Here is a man who was a righteous man. 
Everything is stripped from him. And we get to Job chapter 2, right at the end of Job chapter 2. And here's how he's described. He is afflicted with sores from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. What did I do, Lord? Am I under judgment? Well, we who have the objective view of of the book of Job, we don't know, Job, you're not under judgment. Then again, think about John chapter 9, the man who was born blind. And everyone's saying, ah, it must have been a sin in his parents' life. Someone must have done something wrong. That's why this guy's blind. And what does Jesus gloriously say to this man? No, you were born blind that the works of God might be displayed in you. Friend, remember, through your suffering, that God has manifold purposes for the suffering of his people. Oh, it, it, it is there to bring us endurance. It is there to help us to press into the Lord. It is there to help us to press into the community of Christ. And on and on we can go. Just because we are afflicted by a physical malady does not mean that the Lord is judging us. Again, let me emphasize, highlight, double underline the fact that if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And so we see in this text the pain of judgment. Notice the third facet, the effect of the judgment in this text. Verse 11 serves to highlight the effects of the boils. Do you see verse 11? The magicians who haven't seen, who, who we haven't seen since the third plague, are completely incapacitated. I hope you noticed that as we read the text. They are shown to be completely inept. They can't even stand before Moses and Aaron. And this is a bit of an irony itself, because the text tells us in verse 10 that Moses and Aaron stood erect, backs stiff, confident, before Pharaoh. They stood before Pharaoh, these representatives of Yahweh. But then you get to the very next verse, verse 11. And what do you see? Oh, the very opposite. The followers of this small G God, Pharaoh, they can't even stand. They they have no capacity to stand. They are so incapacitated by the boils. And it's, it's notable that magic and medicine in Egyptian culture overlap. And so the text could very well be suggesting that those with a role in medicine were unable to stand up because of the physical affliction that Yahweh caused. They can't, even the medical people are at an end of themselves because the Lord can take health and snap his fingers and boom, even the best of people are incapacitated. And here it's important to see that Yahweh will crush his enemies No enemy of Yahweh has any hope of standing when he executes his judgment. Think about Psalm 1. You know the contrast of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 paints a picture between two individuals. There is the righteous person and there is the wicked person. And so we see that the righteous person is those who are those who do not associate in a intimate way with those who are ungodly and join them in their ways. They are like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in their season. In all that they do, they prosper. I mean, you've seen a glorious tree before. You've seen a tree that looks healthy. Its leaves fall at the right time. They, they, they bloom at the right time. It is a beautiful sight to see a tree in all of its beauty. This is the righteous man, Psalm 1 says. But the wicked are not so. They are weightless. They will be thrown into the air and blown away because they have no substance to them. And the second half of the psalm tells us this. Therefore, it concludes, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, 
nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What is the effect of judgment? The wicked will not be able to stand in the judgment. They will not be able to stand before the Lord. Now, this is a comfort to the people of God. How could this be a comfort to the people of God? Well, we can have confidence that God will execute his justice, the justice that is due to all, for all the wrongs that have been poured out upon the earth. Oh, man, we, we hate it. When the bad guys win, we do. We hate it in the books that we read, in the fiction that takes place. We hate it on the news when the bad guy gets away. We hate it in our own lives when the wicked person who is responsible for some of our suffering and affliction, he's getting away with it. But this is a comfort to God's people. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. God will hand out justice perfectly right, perfectly fair. You know what? Judges guess when it comes to handing out judgments. It's like, ah, oh, 20 years will do. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really just like a, we handed this guy 20 years and that seems fair for this guy over here. It's, it's really just, a, it, it's guesswork. Every bit of justice that is due for the evil will be received. It's a comfort to God's people. But it's also a fearful reality for those who are not in Christ. Christ is a fearful, dreadful judge for those who are not in Jesus. And so scripture says, find yourself in the Lord. Crawl by faith under the shadow of his wing. Receive receive a, a blocking force from the wrath of God. Be found in Jesus Christ. That's the effect of judgment in the text. Notice, fourthly, another dimension, another feature of judgment. There's the finality of judgment that is pointed to in this text. This text should make us think of another text. This is a text at the beginning of the Bible. There's a text at the end of the Bible this text must make us think about. Revelation 16.2. What's being handed out at the final judgments, the seven bold judgments are being poured out. And what is the first of those bold judgments? Revelation 16.2. It is source upon all of those who did not bow the knee to Christ, but rather bowed the knee to Satan and followed the unrighteous and this wicked world system. Friends, this is a temporary judgment in Exodus chapter 9, but it points forward. It points to the end of time where there will be a permanent judgment handed out for those who are not in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't delight to speak about these things I feel a great deal of angst handling this subject. I feel very Canadian right now. It's, it's, it's an uncomfortable and an ugly subject. And if you feel that way, hang on. Because there's one more feature of judgment that I want to highlight next. But it is important that we deal with the truth. As we said before, warnings are always gracious and kind. If there is a judgment, let's tell people there's a judgment. I would be remiss to not take this opportunity to warn the unbelieving about the judgment that is coming. There's a time that the scriptures are very clear about where the dead in Christ will hear the voice of Christ and be raised to a resurrection of life. But those who are evil, the very same text says, who are not in Christ will be raised to a resurrection of judgment. Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15, indicates that anyone's name not found in the book of life 
will be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. This is the warning of Scripture. Christ is coming again. He will separate the sheep and the goats. The goats will be cast away into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. It is a sobering reality that we must contend with. Just a number of months ago, I read a treatise by a Puritan writer, Robert Bolton. He wrote a treatise called Four Last Things. And he says, if we would prepare for death well, then we must meditate on four things. Death, judgment, hell, and heaven. Think on these things. They will act as guardrails in your life. Think upon death, judgment, hell, and heaven. And he gets to the subject of judgment. And he spends about eight pages talking about the judgment and the particularities of judgment that we ought to meditate upon that will help us as we prepare well for death. For the believer and for the unbeliever, think upon these things. For the believer, it will inform your witness. For the unbeliever, brother or sister, I hope it will press you towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Here are the four things he says that we must meditate on. He says, meditate on how cutting and cold it will be when Christ comes again for those who did not bow the knee to him. The trumpet sounds. Opportunities were given to know Jesus, to trust in Jesus. And at that moment, you realize there are no more chances. Oh, your, your heart will sink. Your, your stomach will feel absolutely more disturbed than ever before. It will be a cutting and a cold moment. And Bolton says, think upon this. It will actually contribute to long-term health. Secondly, he says, meditate on the fact that you will pass through an irrevocable, strict, highest and last tribunal, which can never be repealed or appealed. You will have to give an account for all that you have done in the flesh and the judge's gavel will go down and the sentence will be final. The best negotiator, the best lawyer cannot squeeze you out of any inch of the sentence that will be handed down. It cannot be repealed or appealed. This is the highest level. It, Supreme Court, what's the Supreme Court? Here is the judgment seat of the Lord. And Bolton says, think on this for your long-term health. Thirdly, he says, meditate on the fact that your secret sins will be laid bare before men and women, angels and demons. You will be exposed. When I think about exposure, I think about a desert. And I think about, you know, a man in the desert, t-shirt, shorts, no sunscreen on, no water to his name, no nutrition whatsoever. He is under the oppressive sun. He is exposed. There is not a town near him. There is not a water hole near him. The sun is drying him up like a raisin. His, his skin is being scorched. That is exposure. That's what comes to my mind when I think about exposure. There's nothing he can do. Friends, all of our deeds, all of the hidden ones, all of those secret sins, all of those things that we think we've got a bow tied up on, wrapped up, shoved under the bed, exposed before all men, before the, live, before the face of the living God. 
And Bolton says, meditate on that because it will contribute to your long-term health if you do the right thing with it, if you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and live. And fourthly, he says, meditate on the horrifying state that you will be in when you hear the sentence of damnation to eternal torments and horrors pronounced over you. Oh, there will be that ugly surge of adrenaline pumping through your veins, never ceasing as the sentence is laid down. That horrifying moment where, as we said before, the judge's gavel smacks the bench. And the sen- that's it. The sentence will be written in permanent ink forever. And Bolton says, think about this for your health. Friend, if you are not in the Lord Jesus Christ, think on these verities. Think on these truths. Think on these realities. And turn to Jesus and live. It is a free gift. See, the the text shouldn't point us to Revelation 2, the final judgment, and we think about all these things and the devastation that the final judgment will bring, and then we end there. No, there's one more feature of judgment that we ought to think about as we think about the boil judgments. We are to look at the escape from judgment that is available. Because there are some, oh, there's a multitude the scripture talks about, who when the judge's gavel goes down, he will pronounce not guilty over them. Why? Was it a result of their works? No. Was it a result of their benevolence? No. Was it a result of their ingenuity and all of their intelligence? No. Was it because they looked good? No. Was it because they went to church? No. Was it because they dressed nicely? No. Go through the list. It has nothing to do with any of those. No, the not guilty sentence happens. Why? Because they were joined to the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. This free gift accepted by faith for those who believe. This is the greatest reality. It is the only way. Escape from judgment. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's this. No one escapes judgment except through Jesus. It is a glorious reality such that the Apostle Paul, as he is wading through all this doctrine in the book of Romans, he is talking about the depravity of the world, the sinfulness of the world in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And then he gets to this climactic peak in Romans chapter 8 and he says, guess what, Christian? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You want to escape the judgment? Be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who took your sins upon himself in your place, who paid the penalty that you might live. Be found in him. What do I do? How much does it cost? Oh, no, 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 no. Christ is a treasure so expensive, so worthy, so beautiful, you can't pay a price for him. And here's the glory of grace it's all grace. Be found in Jesus. That is our escape from judgment. And so if you are not found in Christ this morning, come to Jesus. That's the invitation of any text on judgment. Come to Jesus. Lay your burdens before him. Come to him in faith and know him, the only true and living God who can forgive sins. And if you are a Christian, there are two applications for for you. First, revel in the splendor that you have escaped from condemnation. You have escaped from judgment because Jesus Christ is yours by faith. And secondly, run to bear witness about this truth. 
Friends, there is a dying world out there. Bree and I drive to church. We used to drive 25 minutes. And as we were driving to church, we were like, oh, that jogger's probably not coming to church. That group of people walking is probably not coming to church. You know, there's a bunch of people headed to the mall. They're probably not going to church. Like, there's a lot of people who, uh, in fact, they're not coming to church. doesn't mean they're not in Christ, but you get what I'm saying. There's a lot of people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way. Run and tell them. Warn them about the judgment and show them the beauty of this pearl of great price. This treasure hidden in the field which the man who finds it sells all to obtain. Tell them about it. This is the text's first warning. The judgments of God are devastating. The second warning, it's going to be even longer. No, I'm kidding. The second warning tells us that the purposes of Yahweh will stand. This is a warning. The purposes of Yahweh will stand. This is ground well trodden. Look at verse 12. It's familiar territory. Pharaoh, heart hard, doesn't listen, just as Yahweh said. Notice three features of this particular verse. First, there is the source of the hardening, Yahweh. This is the first time after a plague that Yahweh is explicitly said to be the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart. So when we ask the question, who was responsible for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, we have to give this answer. Yahweh and Pharaoh. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Yahweh and Pharaoh. This is the tension that we live in in Scripture. God is absolutely sovereign. He is in control of all of the events that are taking place here. He is in control of the hardening or softening of a man's heart, the hardening here of Pharaoh's heart. But man is responsible. We see this play out all the way through Scripture. The plagues help us especially see that God is sovereign and man is responsible. Now, we can't say that You know, somehow God looked down the corridors of time and he saw that Pharaoh would harden his heart. And so he responded then and said, well, I guess I'll harden Pharaoh's heart because I I see that he'll do that. Mm -mm -mm. That doesn't fly in scripture, especially as we look at Romans chapter 9. that, that, That doesn't work. That makes God contingent. That makes God reactive to what someone else will do. But no, God is fully sovereign. Exodus 9, 16 and Romans 9, 17 tell us that the purpose of God in raising Pharaoh up, was to demonstrate God's power and glory, the fame of his name, the judgment of the wicked. And we must live with this tension that God is sovereign over these events, that his name might be glorified, that his people might be redeemed, that the wicked might be judged. But the wicked are responsible. Second, There is the result of the hardening. So there's the source of the hardening, it's Yahweh. Then there's the result of the hardening. Do you see it? Second phrase of the text, verse 12. Take a look at it. The boils are awful. The boils are obvious. The cries are audible. And Pharaoh is unmoved. Note, his fingers go in his ears, stogs up his ears, I will not listen. The result of the hardening, Pharaoh will not listen. Just as before. And thirdly, look at the reality of the hardening. It is according to God's plan and purposes. Do you see that phrase? Which I would just normally skip over, but it is a helpful, healthy phrase. Look at it. It ends the text. 
But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Look at the reality of the hardening. God does what he says. Back in chapter 4, verse 21. Back in chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart in order to do what? Glorify my name, redeem my people, and judge the wicked. All of my plans will be accomplished. And the Lord does it. Verifying for us this truth, which we find elsewhere in Scripture, that God's words are true. His promises do not fail. God's name will be promoted from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, as one that is truthful. He does what he says. That is the reality of Pharaoh's hardening. And the same is true today. God is jealous for his glory. He will display his power and glory in the earth. Nothing will stop him, not even hard-hearted individuals. In fact, he will use hard-hearted individuals for his glory to accomplish his purposes. That is the reality of the hardening. God does as he says. His plans will be accomplished. As we bring this sermon home, it's helpful for me to say this. I believe in expository preaching. In other words, I believe that the terrain of the sermon should be the, or the terrain of the text should be the terrain of the sermon. We should exposit, we should extract from Scripture what is there and apply it to God's people. That's expository preaching. I want to say what the Scriptures say. At the same time, I also believe that our expository preaching should major in preaching whole books of the Bible. Why whole books of the Bible? Well, so often pastors can have pet topics pet passages, and we gravitate towards those. They're, they're usually positive-sounding texts. We sort of extract them from their context, but they're the things we want to talk about. Also, I believe that we should, and, you know, preaching through a book of the Bible helps us stay away from that. But it also helps God's people because we learn the book of the Bible within its own context. We see that chapter 1 and chapter 2 are related, and chapter 7 and chapter 1 are related. We, we start to see the continuity of a book. We actually learn how to interpret Scripture together because the pastor is preaching expositorily. But one of the other reasons that I love expository preaching is because the Bible often repeats itself. And we live in a culture of novelty where I want to hear something new. I want to taste something new. I want to go through the drive through and order something I've never had before. But the Bible sometimes repeats things because in God's wisdom and providence, he knows that God's people need to hear things repeated again and again and again. God's pastors and God's people. And oftentimes, I would maybe repeat myself once or twice or three times, but not four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. Friends, we, by no mistake of our Lord who is sovereign, are planted in the book of Exodus and we are going through the plagues one by one. And every single time we have gone through the plagues, we are seeing repetition. How do we know that the Lord is speaking to us? Well, we open up his word and the Lord speaks. And again and again and again in this season of Hessler Baptist Church's life, he is repeating the phrase, but the Lord hardened or but Pharaoh hardened his heart. We are getting reminders of a hard heart again and again and again. It's going to happen a few more times. But this is time number six. And I don't want it to just sort of fly over our radars and be lost on us. That this is where we find ourselves in God's providence. 
Friends, we do not want to be those sorts of people that James, the brother of Jesus, talks about in his epistle who hear the word but don't do it. Who hear the word but don't put it into practice. Who, you know, it's, it, yeah, that was nice. Okay, let's go talk about the game. Let's go eat some lunch. Let's go, you know, get my dorm room set up or, you know, whatever it is. Let's just, the types that look in the mirror to get a hold of what their face looks like and they walk away and they forget what they look like. It, it, there's no point. It's like looking in the mirror and seeing that you have spinach on your teeth and, and, and going, ah, whatever. Walking away and doing nothing about it. My makeup's a mess. My hair is disheveled. And walking away. Friends, let's be doers of God's word. Let's hear what he is saying. He is highlighting, double underlining. He is putting in all bold italics any way he can that Pharaoh hardened his heart. If you're not a Christian with us today and you've been with us for any stretch of time, friend, why is it that you will not extend your hand to take hold of Christ by faith? He is calling for you. As we talk about Pharaoh hardening his heart, he's calling. He's saying, look, it ends in destruction. The sea will destroy them in the end. But it's God's people who have the victory. Friend, reach out to Christ by faith. Perhaps you're a Christian and you're hardening your heart as it pertains to a particular sin. You're going, ah, you know what? I've, I've sort of got this managed. In other words, it's secret. It's a secret right now. Don't, this is a second sort of tier of hardening. Don't harden your heart, friend. Come to Jesus and see the forgiveness that was so sweet when you took hold of him by faith. When he called you his own. Oh, be, just... Expose yourself to him and, 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 and see his lavish grace on display in your life. As he forgives your sin, as he restores you, as he transforms your mind, as he shows you that the community of Christ is meant for moments like that. We're not just meant to sit next to each other and greet each other all nicely on a Sunday morning. No, we are sinners here to help other sinners. We are the sick in need of a physician. This is a hospital. This isn't a place for the well and the upstanding. And the people that got it all together. It's not why I'm here. <laughs> we are here for one another. Brothers and sisters, extend that hand to someone else. Ask for help. Ask for grace from the Lord. Let us be hearers of the word and doers. Let us hear the repeated warnings of the Lord through the plagues. Let us not harden our hearts. Oh, Spirit of God, help us to this end, we pray. Lord, we need you in this manner, in this capacity. As, as, as we come before you, Lord, we ask that even at this time, those who are not in the Lord Jesus Christ would have their consciences pricked by the power of the Holy Spirit and that they would feel restless and that they would feel that stone in the shoe of great proportions until they cling to Jesus Christ, that great treasure. And Lord, we pray for the brother and sister who is wallowing under sin, who is hiding it, and the sin is festering and infecting. Lord, we pray that they would know freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, may five verses on boils. Help us to see all this. Help us to change. Oh God, transform us, we pray. 
And we all ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.